0: Hello and welcome to the podcast of Emanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmanuelAG.com. I'm excited just to get back in our series that we started last week. Um, It was called Keys to the Kingdom. And how many of you guys, anybody missed last week? We have something in the back for you. If you missed last week, we actually have some keys. I believe I have mine on still. We have some keys out there that we'd love for you to pick up. We'd love for you to grab one of these. Um, It's going to kind of just be a token for remembrance, to remember what we're talking about. Um, And if you missed last week's, I think it'll be up soon uh, on the podcast. Bruce does a tremendous job uh, updating that and and putting those online. But if you missed last week's first week for Keys to the Kingdom, it'll be really, really helpful to know where we started um, because we're going to be building off of that. And so last week, um, we discussed what is the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew likes to refer to it as. And we talked about why does Jesus talk about the kingdom so much more than even the other New Testament writers. Um, it's, it's one that he talks about over 134 times. That phrase is used just in the Gospels, but then only, only in the 30s, 34, 37, somewhere in there, for the rest of the New Testament. So we talked about why is that the case, and and how do we see that language really trickle into maybe other verbiage or other paradigms, you know, Jesus is Lord, talking about him as king and and his lordship. And so I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to that, because we spent some time really looking at the foundation for the kingdom, and that foundation being the revelation of who Jesus is. Of who the king really is, you know. In in Matthew 16, Jesus asked Peter this. He says, "Who do they say I am?" Well, yeah, he asked his whole uh, group of disciples this, but Peter answers. Uh, he says, "Who do they say I am?" And they gave the answer of of what the crowds have been saying, and maybe even what Herod had said about John the Baptist and, and Elijah and and maybe one of the prophets and Jeremiah. But but then Peter answers, and it's and it's upon this revelation of Jesus as the sent one, the anointed one, the Messiah, that he says, I'm going to then build my church. The keys of the kingdom, I believe, we will continue to discuss. These will be principles. And so these keys will be a reminder of the principles that we see in Scripture that will hopefully guide our understanding, fuel our purpose, and hopefully the way that we live our lives. And so we're going to continue by looking at that passage again. We're going to add to where we ended last week out of Matthew 16. But before we do, would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we just thank you. We thank you um, for just what you have already done in this place and the hearts that are are being renewed and um, our spirits that are being revived. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for how you demonstrate your kingdom, how you come. And uh, the kingdom of God is joy and, and peace and love and the Holy Ghost. And we thank you that your kingdom is Full of righteousness and truth that is not just being right, but it is also the truth that trumps everything else in our life Lord and we ask Lord that that truth is well where we would find freedom and we thank you for your kingdom it is settling in our hearts it is within us. there are so many aspects to your kingdom that the scripture talk about, Lord, and we just ask Lord that our spirits as we are in this place, would be renewed and revived and refocused upon your plans for us as individuals, for us as a collective, as your body, as your people. And Lord, I just pray right now that uh, those even watching at home and those here with us, Lord, that are still that are carrying something, that they, they feel like, Lord, they need some community and assistance to just to just bear and walk through right now. God, I pray that you would visit them right where they're at. God, I believe those that are listening God, right now are going to experience and sense your presence in a way that they just haven't in a long time. Lord, right now more than ever, God, there's so much heaviness in our world. Lord, we need need the renewal of your spirit within us. So would you visit them? Would you visit us? We thank you, God. We'll give you the glory. Amen and amen. So today, if you'll turn with me, if you've got that paper Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Dial up on your phone, your tablet, whatever is easiest for you. I'm going to put some scriptures on the screen, but I'm sure I'm going to jump around a little bit as well as I typically do. Um, But we're going to be in Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28. And so I'm going to read that at the beginning first, and then we'll add to it coming back verse by verse. And so 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, never, he calls him Lord, never, Lord. He said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, man, imagine Jesus turning and saying this to you today. This would be weird. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Before they see the Son of Man coming with his kingdom. Lord, may you bless the reading of your word. And so as we look at the kingdom that was coming, that has come, that is still to come, we see that Jesus is building upon the revelation that Peter had of who the Christ is. The foundation, the cornerstone for everything that God is going to build. And so we start right there in verse 21. And he says, Jesus says, from that time on, or the story, I'm sorry, the narrative of Matthew is from that time on, So after the revelation of who Jesus was, given by God, a revelation of heaven to Peter, I mean, Jesus made it clear, hey, you didn't come up with this on your own. You couldn't have fabricated understanding my identity. This is a spirit-born revelation that I have made known to you. And so Jesus affirms that. And then Jesus says, now, from this time, Jesus is now able to begin so I believe with those words in that phrasing, Jesus begins to talk about what ultimately must happen, how this kingdom will be established. And he says he began to explain. So he is starting to explain, Meshach, his disciples are hard headed a lot like I am. It's probably gonna take a number of explanations before they finally they're like, maybe he's really serious about this. Maybe, maybe it's really not gonna happen the way that we had expected. He begins to explain to his disciples that a couple things have to happen. One, we're going to a specific city. We're going to a location. We are headed to Jerusalem. That is where this must take place. And he said, and I must suffer many things. And he says at the hands of the religious officials, and he names them in in different categories. But then he adds to that the other things that he must suffer experience in order for this kingdom, for the next step of God's purposes and his plans to occur, the next step is that he also must be killed, and I love that Jesus adds this, and on the third day be raised to life. Can you imagine if Jesus had just told them, I'm going to die, end of story, that's how it must happen, death would still be the victor today. But Jesus says, I must also be raised to life because death, hell, the grave. It, remember the keys, right? No, the no power of, of, of death, hell, and the grave, that Hades will not be able to overcome it. And Jesus is saying the full gospel is, yes, I will be crucified. The, re, the redemption, the plan for all salvation and forgiveness of sins will be through my death, but also through my resurrection, Because our sins are not just only atoned for, but they are removed from us. And we can have life everlasting because He lives forever. We are not dead in our sins because Christ is no longer dead. We have not only had atonement, if Jesus made atonement, but yet didn't defeat the power of death and hell because that's the wages of our sin, then we would still be making those sacrifices annually. Does that make sense? Even Jesus' great perfect sacrifice would not have defeated them without his resurrection. It is defeated in our life once and for all, Paul would say. Once and for all. I feel so much taller with this little bitty short. Anyways, I just thought about that. So Jesus, in my distractions, he is saying that This verse here is literally a pivot of what everything he has told and demonstrated for the disciples up to this point. This revelation now is a pivot for what he now is embarking upon the rest of his journey. The reason reason that God sent him. He says, from that time on, he began literally, apotote, from that time in the Greek, marking a pivot in everything else in the gospel. And this is true in also Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of those. This is such a pivot from I have demonstrated who I am. You've seen the miracles. They have pointed that who I am saying that I am is true. It's validated in the the testimony of what you have observed. What was it? John the Baptist, we were talking to a pastor this week. It was really neat. Kind of lines up with what I'm talking about now. But John the Baptist, who goes out and preaches the kingdom is here, the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is near, Right, that there is one more worthy than I that is coming, he, when he's thrown into prison, sends his disciples to ask Jesus, what? Are you really the one? Or should we expect someone else? Even in our moments of doubt, which I believe John was having a moment of doubt, looking at what was about to happen in his own life, he asked Jesus, are you really the one? The question that Jesus has just asked his disciples. And how does Jesus confirm it for him? He's like, the blind see, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. He confirmed that I am the one based on how I've demonstrated the kingdom. I have demonstrated the kingdom and it is affirming to the identity that I am the king. And so he continues in this passage here. That Matthew says, now the shift begins, that upon the revelation of his divine nature and calling, that the pivot, the pivot can now build upon the fact that he is the Messiah, the gates of Hades that will not be able to overcome it. But now we can see the alignment occur between heaven's throne and earth's footstool. And he says, this will be demonstrated not just through what I will do, but through the people that will gather around this revelation and will fill the earth and will establish my church. That's the kingdom of heaven. His people, those that he has created, that will establish his kingdom here on earth, where we will begin to make the enemies of God a footstool to his feet, right? That's the prophecy from Isaiah that the New Testament writers talk about, how even the enemies, his enemies, will become his footstool. This is the the finality, the ultimate, where the snake will crush the serpent, as the youth talked about on Thursday, where you begin to see the fulfillment of that prophecy, even from Genesis 3, that he will crush him, and it didn't just happen on that cross, but it continues to happen. It's, it is a prophecy with multiple fulfillments. It has an ultimate fulfillment with ripples that we see even today in your life. You are making that enemy a footstool to his feet. It may have bit him on the hill and it may have looked like he was going to win on that day 2,000 years ago and it may look like he's winning in some areas in your life but ultimately we stand upon the victory that Christ lives in us and the enemy doesn't have the final word. He doesn't have it today and we bring his kingdom's ways into our life and our world. We claim it on the unborn that are inside us, right? We claim his promises for health and for healing. We claim his promises for our job, that we walk in his blessings, that we are the head and not the tail, that we see his kingdom come, that it declares through his people that there is one greater than us, that it points to his glory, and that we are surrendered and submitted to one greater than our own plans and purposes. Bring that back up here, because I'm about to lose all my stuff. And so, for me, that I don't want to miss today, is that there is a new order being established. You may think it's the, the world government's agenda, that the, the, you know, even coronavirus may be a part of some some global coup, coup and maybe. But the one that I am looking to be established is not of this world. Regardless of what man is attempting to do, I am surrendering to a king who will ultimately cause every knee to bow. And I will continue to put the blood on the doorpost of my life and over my families, and fear will not cripple us, But we have allowed so many things of our culture and our society to infiltrate our faith, and it has seized us where we were. But it is time that we look to the one who says, nothing will overcome, nothing will overcome the establishment of his kingdom. This new order is going to be established with or without us, Meshach. I said it last week, he wants to use his people. He absolutely will do this through his people. Will you be a part of those that say, yes, Lord? I want to be a part of what you're doing in my life, not caught up in the swirl of this culture, of this world, that I can say, God, yes, I will be a part of seeing your kingdom established. So that new order, or should we honestly say it's the original order being restored? It is the original order. It is what he intended from all along. It is being restored. And so Jesus began to explain to them how this kingdom would reign and rule. It wasn't like any other kingdom that they had known. Its principles were starkly different than what they were used to and even what they were expecting. Peter didn't expect it to happen the way that Jesus was saying it was going to happen. And so we see that the demonstration of the kingdom, they didn't have any problem with that. Man, that's where the crowds are coming around. Man, the demon, revival, renewal. Look, everybody, yeah, the, the light is shining bright and the bugs are even attracted, right? We've got people, throngs of people who don't get what these are pointing to, who he is. The demonstration of the kingdom was the fun part, but now Jesus is on his way to establishing that kingdom and it comes at a price. If we're going to establish his kingdom in our lives and in our world, guess what? It's still going to come at a price. It's going to come at a price of being misunderstood. Here Jesus is even being misunderstood by his own disciples. It's going to come at a price even maybe physically. Jesus predicts that for his own disciples and we shouldn't expect any less. How are the servants any greater than our master? That's how Jesus would tell us. And so there is this city. He says that we're going for this next phase. It's got to take place there. We're headed to Jerusalem. And Jesus must, oh, the Greek word here, I I love it. It implies this character of necessity or compulsion. This has to happen. And it has to happen in this way, that he must suffer many things. And it's going to happen at the hands of the religious officials. And it's probably not going to look much different in our day either. But he will suffer these in fulfillment of what was prophesied centuries before his coming. And I wonder, you know, I mean, just based on Peter's response, I wonder if did the disciples really get it. I mean, they knew all the passages, I think, that were messianic for the most part. I think they looked at a lot of Isaiah's prophecies and Jeremiah's writings. And, and I think they understood a lot of these were pointing to the one that they were waiting for, to establish right that new world order in their, in their world. But did they forget that he was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53? Or had they maybe spun it to interpret it that, oh, that's just figurative? I mean, I just really wonder, because what's going through Peter's mind? How has he theologically allowed him to, himself to believe something that is totally different than what Jesus is telling him? Because his theology isn't the same as Jesus' right now. Let's just be honest. And he's saying, oh no, 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 Jesus, that's not the way we believe the kingdom's gonna happen. That's not the way you're gonna restore it to its rightful place. I thought you knew, I thought you knew Jesus. I thought I thought you knew. And so Jesus, and, and I wonder if the rest of the disciples just, just miss those, those references to his fate maybe not being literal in those in those prophecies. But either way, the disciples of which Peter steps forward again, right, as that spokesperson. They did not like hearing Jesus explain the many things that he was going to suffer. We must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. We I must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. They missed that part. Did you hear? Did you hear in Peter's response how final it was what Jesus was about to experience? No, no, and on the third day, Peter, I think you I think you missed my last thing that I said. It's not going to be final. It's not, But I don't think Peter could even understand. Not only, Jesus, do you not need to die, but I can't even understand resurrection. Like, what in the world? Like, we don't, that's not our experience. That's not the world we operate in, Jesus. You're defying the laws that we live by. Like, that doesn't, no, that's right, because my laws are not of this world. My thoughts are higher than yours, as Isaiah would say. But his suffering, it's not the end. I, Peter missed it. I think. I think sometimes even in Christian circles you can get to that extreme where we must endure. I'm just. I'm suffering for the Lord. Woe is me. I expected to be misunderstood, and we use those verses right to validate staying in that spot, and we don't live by hope in the resurrection power. We can't avoid the suffering, right? That's not going to do us any good either, right? We can't live by well. God bless, I ain't gonna ever have any trials or tribulations or troubles. That's not scriptural either. All right? Neither one of these spectrums are going to be the full gospel that Jesus is preaching to us right now. But as we endure and as we go through these things, he promises that nothing will be put on us that is too heavy for us to bear. It's what Paul would write to the Corinthians. But in it all, he will provide a way out. It is in the valley, even in the valley. In that shadow of death, literally looks like that is all we see around us, that he is with us. And it is because we know the hope on the other side, because Jesus demonstrates it on that third day. He declares that these things we walk through aren't the end. Peter missed that part. The suffering? He missed the hope. He missed that it was all because of the glory that was being produced. It isn't because... You know, the things that the Lord wants to even do inside of each one of us. Oh, Lord, I I just pray that you would help me learn perseverance and patience. And usually when I pray like really crappy prayers like that, Meshach, I don't want the answer. Let's just be honest. You're going to teach me patience by probably making me walk through some stuff. By probably giving me four kids and (laughs) probably... (laughs) Lord, do I really want to learn these things? I just want you magically to give it to me is what I really meant. I didn't want it produced in me. But that's the way of the gospel. It is a seed that must die in the ground before it gives life. It is the pearl of great price for which we sell everything else so that we can have it. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. We don't miss that the suffering and the death, it leads to hope. It leads to life eternal. It is establishing something that is not just temporary, but is forever. And it's establishing it within our character. It's establishing it within our emotional intelligence. It is helping us sanctify and be made holy so that we, when we are presented to him on that day, that's my bride. That's the one I ca-. Can you imagine the look in his eyes? he is ravished to see us. He is enthralled with love because that's the one that has been waiting for me. Not not like I didn't get enough oil waiting for you. But no, I've been actively preparing myself for this moment. That's That's what we're living this life for. This is the blip on the radar for what we will do for the rest of eternity. So those that are watching that maybe you're not here in person, we will be there in person, okay? There's no virtual heaven, right? We will not be Zoomed in or Facebook Lived. We will be there in person without mask. There will be no more sickness, no more tears, no more foggy glasses. There will be none of that. No more septic tanks, I believe. Heaven has got that all worked out. (laughs) All our trials that we call them now, they will be they will be sadly dim compared to the glory that we're beholding. All this that we endured to see his kingdom established, when we see it in its fullness, oh, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, but the Spirit of God is revealing it to us now. How great and grand that day will be. That is what we're living this life for. And so Jesus says, we must go to Jerusalem. We're headed there. Have you, ever, um, have you ever had some things that you felt like the Lord dropped in your heart? And you're like, oh, I remember as a teenager, he began to kind of work missions into my heart and how he did that. And, and I felt like I knew where the Lord was sending me. And especially, I'll just be honest, as a teen, like we need that. We need the carrot of purpose just to keep us moving forward. And, and I believe that is so healthy. I believe, I believe we have to have those fires. And, and if you've come to the Lord maybe later in your life, he begins to just explode purpose and destiny and... I have a reason that I'm, like, he's created me for this. And and we began to hear some of the things, Well, you know, maybe God has gifted me to do that. Maybe he's put this inside. He has. But then we interpret it to how he's going to do it. So we have the what sometimes, but we don't always know the when or the how. And we begin, and I think that's what Peter was doing here. He's like, Jesus, we know you're the king. We know that you're going to overthrow all the kingdoms of the earth. (laughs) But not like that. Not, not not, by, you're going to have to dot, no, 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 no. We can figure out another way. I, you're God, after all. I've seen the things you've done. And I think so much even for myself, how I've, I've, I've known the plans and the purposes of God, and I've tried to work them out in my own way. But we may know the plans, but we can't always interpret the path. He's sovereign. He allows us. I love how the righteous in Proverbs, the righteous are able to make their plans, but he directs their footsteps. He directs our path. And for us, you know, I've always heard, you know, the Lord can't can't move a parked car. Sometimes you just got to start moving in a direction and watch the Lord direct you. You know, even our hope in the Lord isn't just sitting back and waiting for him to do something. It, It is us actively trusting in him that he's going to open these doors that we're knocking on, that we're moving into, that we're sensing his direction. And so there may be some things you feel like the Lord's put in your heart that he is going to do. It just hasn't happened when you thought he was going to do it or maybe how you thought he was going to do it. So often we just need to be reminded, hey, he's still got this and I'm not sitting back. I'm still moving forward. I'm still going towards what he last told me. And I know even when I floundered in some of my darkest days, I went back to the last thing that he had told me. And I just, that was the the only thing I knew to do to go back to what he had last said and start working back towards that and, and just watch him restore some of the hurts, watch him you know, bring some of the numbness back to life. And, and that's where I was at. And so when that happens, we don't, we don't just lose sight, but we go back to the last thing we know he told us and we keep moving in the direction. We're headed to Jerusalem. That's where we're going. And this is what's going to happen. We don't know how or when, and it doesn't sound exactly the way we planned it, but your kingdom is going to be established through this this process. And so Peter took him aside. So it was to the disciples as a group. And Peter kind of does that whole model of, hey, one-on-one. And I don't know why Peter did this. Maybe he did it because he didn't want to embarrass Jesus. Jesus, you're not really. Maybe he did it because he's like, what if I'm wrong? And What if Jesus tells me otherwise? Who knows? But Jesus, Peter, they're pulled to the side. And it's really interesting to me. He says Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus cuts him off. He only begins to rebuke him. Never, Lord. He still refers to him as Lord, right? Never one who is master and in control of everything else. Never the way that you've just said, right? He's still calling him Lord, but he doesn't doesn't want to agree with the way that he's going to do things. So it's kind of an oxymoron to me. It's kind of a contradiction. Never, Lord, will you do that in my life that way. Well, why are you? I'm reminded of what A.W. Tozer said. He said, he is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. He says he is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. Either God is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. That's what he says. And so I think here we see kind of this discrepancy in what Peter is saying. The lip service is there. You're saying the right things. You're, you know, you're going to the right Bible study. You're a part of the discipleship group. You know, you're, follow- you're still kind of hanging out with Jesus, but you are still saying the right things, but you're not interpreting them the right way because he's not really Lord of everything. And so I think, I think Jesus has to kind of give him a little run for his money on this. He, he says, this shall never happen to you. And so after Peter pulls him aside, he begins to rebuke him. Jesus, this isn't how you establish a kingdom. You're supposed to remove the the Romans from their current authority. Put yourself on top. Maybe even give us a little power and make our lives better. Ultimately, Peter is saying death is not the way to victory, Jesus. The way you're trying to do this is not how you win. Sacrifice is not the way to assert your authority. That's what Peter's telling him. Really? Really? You serve, that's how you lead by serving? Come on, Jesus. I think we got to get a better, better model of ministry here. This isn't, I don't think this is gonna work out. Like we really, you're supposed to overthrow, remember? Really, Jesus, you're telling me that I need to gird myself with a towel instead of take up a sword, even in my Facebook post? Really, Jesus? That's how you want me to establish your kingdom? I mean, that's to me. I'm, I'm preaching to Michael right now. Really, Jesus? You're saying that we're going we're gonna to wash people's feet instead of cut off people's ears? And, and Peter, Peter gets that paradigm because he's, he's operating in that other world very, very well. I think Peter and I are more alike than I like to admit. <laughs> and so Jesus is saying, I'm talking about a kingdom that is not of this world, a kingdom whose principles don't look, smell, act, or think like those of the culture and the world around us. Jesus is saying, you don't get it. This kingdom doesn't look like what you have typically seen established here. If you like to read, I would recommend a great book. It's called Upside Down Kingdom. The Upside Down Kingdom by Donald Craybill. And and basically the synopsis of the book is this, that Jesus wins by serving and triumphs by losing. Today, God's way still looks upside down as it breaks into diverse cultures around the world. And according to Craybill in Upside Down Kingdom, he says, worldly authorities seek power and prestige. But Jesus's counterculture message, it's a clear call to turn the social ladder upside down. Jesus demonstrates radical opposition to the dominant culture by making friends with social outcasts and rebelling against the authorities. The religious authorities, for the most part, those that were interpreting what the kingdom was going to look like and how it was going to operate, because they loved what, Christian? They loved their traditions more than the truth. We were interviewing a pastor. Actually, he was just coming to pray for our virtual banquet for Kiko And um, Daryl Arnold, pastor of OBC, uh, just down Magnolia, And he said this, he said, he said, what is happening right now, even among my religious friends, is that we're seeing just the same things that Jesus saw. People love their old ways of doing things. We love our traditions more than we love even the kingdom's ways and its truth. And he said, People just assume because I'm black, I'm democratic. (laughs) He says, I'm not democratic. Or I'm Republican, I'm not Republican. He says, it's about a kingdom. And it's about what that kingdom looks like here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, we love the truth more than we love our traditions. Because that's where Jesus flipped over some tables. Let's just be honest. And I have traditions too. And so I have to ask myself, and I don't recognize them as traditions because I assume they're based on truth. And they didn't see it either. When Jesus confronted them, truly, truly, I say to you, Woe to you, you hypocrites. You look like this, you say this, but you don't want it my way. Everything that you've been studying and reading, it's testifying about me. And you don't like the way I'm demonstrating. You don't like the fact that I'm hanging out with prostitutes. You don't like the fact that I talk about orphan care so much. You don't like the fact that it's about the widows and the disenfranchised and those who can't speak for themselves, the unborn, the unborn who are being murdered in our nation. You don't like the fact that I talk about some of the social things that you're comfortable with and then I also talk about the ones that you're uncomfortable with. Jesus would say, you don't like the fact that I feel like you're spinning things, you're making it about a kingdom that may be of this world, but no, it's a kingdom that is not of this world because it looks and imitates the way heaven will be and it is going to be established here on earth. I'm not trying to be political. I'm trying to say, what would Jesus be doing in this moment as he would be speaking to us? As people who probably still love our traditions in some areas of our life and of our heart, if we'll be honest with ourselves, myself included, then we do sometimes his truth. His truth will still cut. It is a sword that will divide between joint and marrow. And it does that in my own life. And it does that when I have to humbly not fall upon my own sword, but the sword of his truth. Because that sword gives life not death. That sword brings life, and it brings it to our spirit as we remove the soulish ways. I can't help but be influenced by my culture and my surroundings. I can't help having grown up in the Bible Belt to just assume everyone's heard about Jesus and knows about him and has understood the things that I understand. But we live in a world that is post-Christian. Let's just be honest, even in the Bible Belt, I have to assume that the people I work with, I interact with, where I shop, where you gas up, that they may not know Jesus from Jack and Jill. That we demonstrate him, but we also describe him. Because they may not have heard and tasted just how good he is. And so Jesus, he turns, he turns to Peter and he says, so I'm not sure like this whole one-on-one thing where like, Jesus and Peter were taken to the side. I'm not sure where Jesus was looking because now he's turning to Peter. I think he's he's just like the intentionality of what Matthew is saying is he's looking at him face to face and he's saying, get behind me, Satan. So we just went from a man who had the revelation of heaven and upon this rock, you are Peter and upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Can you imagine the swell Peter felt, right? The, The pride, they're like, yeah, He's gonna build his church, and I'm gonna be the head. You know, like Peter's feeling that, and then the very next sentence is, "Get behind me, Satan!" <laughs> it's like it's like the genie being led out of the bottle, and like itty-bitty living space, right? I mean, it's like boom to back into your little your little golden lamp here, Peter. And I think sometimes we're like, I mean, I do the same thing where I'm like, "Yes, I've got I see God's revelation from out," and then and then I go and I try to. Put it to work and do it the way I interpret it. And it's like, no, that's not exactly how I was going to do it. (laughs) That is according to your understanding, not according to mine. But God, in your timing, I mean my timing, like right now, right? Come on. Get behind me, Satan, satanas. The word used there, literally a borrowing from the Hebrew and the Aramaic meaning, just adversary, Get behind me, you who are in opposition to God's plans and purposes. Sometimes it's our thoughts, sometimes it's our feelings, sometimes it's these things that we have to take captive, as Paul would say, to the obedience of Christ. That's the end of that verse. So we take these things that are adversely opposed to the work of the Messiah, and what what do we do with those? We make them a footstool to his feet. We give him a place to rest and to rule and to reign in our thought bed, in the seat of our emotions, the things of our culture. We take those things and we forcefully establish his kingdom by saying, Jesus, no, you reign here. Your throne is in heaven and earth is your footstool. Prop him up, Jesus, on these things. Come and make, sorry, BJ. And so Jesus calls Peter an adversary. What he is thinking and now saying is in contradiction to God's plan. So what was just revealed to him by the Father in heaven, he spoke with revelation. But now he is speaking with a fleshly mind. He's misunderstanding the plans and purposes of God. He's saying you are aligned with a way that is adversely opposed to what God is about to do. Where you were once a small stone, remember? We talked about that Petra and uh, and, uh, upon Petras, upon this greater rock formation, this establishment, I will build my church, this revelation. He says, but now you're a different kind of rock. You're a stumbling block. That's what he calls him here. He's still in that whole thing. Yes, you are Petra. And upon this revelation of who I am, I will establish my church. But now you're back into the mode of thinking fleshly. And it's in opposition to what the Lord is going to do. And now there is still a rock involved. It's just one that is tripping up the purposes and plans of God in your life. Because we're too fleshly minded to understand the heavenly plans that he has. And so Jesus literally calls him a different kind of rock. It's called, it's the word in Greek is scandalon. Peter, you're scandalous, right? You are literally, you are, think about something that is scandalous is to trip up, to catch someone in the act, to literally a stumbling block in the way of what God already has put into order. His mind is different than the merely human concerns that Peter has in mind. Peter went from thinking heavenly thoughts to earthly thoughts, possibly in a matter of moments. We're not told kind of the timeline of this whole transaction. But when our minds are set on the things of the Spirit, it leads to life. That's what Paul would tell us in Romans. Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite, favorite chapters, right? It's going to be tattooed somewhere. Verse six says this: the mind governed by the flesh is death. I believe Peter could probably have written this just as well as Paul. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and life forever. Jesus would say, and peace. The mind governed by the flesh it's hostile to God. It is an opposition. It's an adversary. It's a stumbling block. It does not submit to God's ways, his laws, his plans, nor can it even do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. This could not be a more appropriate set of verses for Peter to understand in this moment had they been written, but they weren't. So he's pulling from a different order of scriptures to understand, well, how is the Messiah really going to establish this kingdom? Surely it's going to be the way that I expect it. He's going to take away the power from the Romans, And we're getting out of here. But his plans, his ways were different. So verse 24, Jesus says to his disciples, Hey guys, back to the group. Back to the group huddle. Done talking to Peter. I know you all heard that. Sorry, not sorry. Yeah, Satan was kind of putting some thoughts in his mind and he was rolling with it. If you want to be my disciple still, guess what? You're going to have to deny yourself. Go ahead and get these three things. Write them on your post-it note. You know, Put them up in your little mud hut, wherever you live. Put them next to the mirror that you don't have, because I've seen some of y'all, fishermen. He says, you're going to have to do these three things. Deny yourself. Take up your cross if you want to follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. This is not, I don't believe, in the book on how to win friends and influence people. All right? Hey, if you want to win friends and influence people, you're going to need to deny yourself and get crucified. How's that sound? Woo! We're having a crucifixion party this weekend. Nobody's coming, right, to that small group. (laughs) Nobody's coming to your celebration. But Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to follow things, if you want to have the establishment of the kingdom in your life, you want to be the follower of the king, then guess what? You're not him. You better start denying yourself. Take up your cross. That's where I'm headed. No servants above his master if you want to follow me. Remember what A.W. Tozer said, either God is Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. Essentially, Christ reminds his disciples that the servants are not above their master. And the way predicted for Jesus, yes, it is a fulfillment of prophecies of what was necessary to make atonement and redemption, but the servants of this master would experience the cost of following Jesus as well. The cost of being his disciple. How many of you ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Anybody ever heard of Dietrich? One of my favorite. I was, I was a nerd when I was 16, 15. I think I was actually 15. I got the cost of discipleship for my birthday. It was something I really, really wanted. If you've never read The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it's a great, great book. I won't spoil it for you and let you know how liberal he really was in his theology and that he actually tried to assassinate Hitler. But um, So he interpreted the scripture a little bit differently than maybe I might. But his cost of discipleship taught me so many things as a young buck. One of the things that I love that he says, he says this, he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Somehow we've changed what the gospel was to something that's a little more palatable and comfortable today. I'll just be honest. It's not a part of our church growth models. It's not, a, hey, if you want to grow a big church, make sure you preach the cross. Make them comfortable first and give them, give them one that's a little easier to kind of gravitate towards the cross. We'll see how far we get. But let's be honest, this is where Jesus started with being his disciple. And, and we are prey to our culture right now, myself included, on making it to where, oh, but that seems offensive. But it's the truth that if you want him to be king, then you're not. And guess what? There's some sacrifices to being his disciple. You may be misunderstood because he was. You don't don't even have to retaliate. Think about how he kept his mouth closed all the way to the point of his death until he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I want to read a longer quote from that book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, "'Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow.' And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, he says, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, for mine and for yours, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. It is his king entering our world. And it is no different when his kingdom begins to invade our earth and make submission of authorities that are not under his to see them become his footstool. It will still come at a price. And Jesus would go on and tell his disciples, if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you want life eternal, it may even, call, it may even mean your own martyrdom. And many of his disciples, that, that was their experience. Peter, crucified upside down, not to be worthy to be crucified the way his Savior was. John, they couldn't get rid of him fast enough where he gets the book of Revelation on an island where he had been exiled only after he had been boiled in hot oil. The things that the disciples would go through, I wonder these verses if they weren't going through their minds in those moments. Oh, but what a glory we shall see and we shall experience and I believe even in those moments they did. Stephen, there being stoned, looks up to heaven to see a man standing. Let's see him stand again as we say, God, you know what? I'm willing to lose my life in order to find it, in order to find life eternal in the establishment of your kingdom here. And so Jesus, he lays these foundations for us. And he says, saving will mean losing. Losing will mean finding. It is an upside down kingdom. It is not according to the ways of our culture, our world, or what they tell us, how to win friends and influence people. It's not in the books, but it's the words of our Savior. These are the things that I I dwell on, Meshach. I'm consumed with these thoughts. I wrestle with them day in and day out. Even when I see things inside of me that I know need to crawl up and get on that cross. This is where I come back to in my thoughts and in my heart, in in the way that I respond to my kids, in the way I interact with my staff, in the things that I wrestle with. God, I know that as I am following you, there are things in my life that will be crucified. There will things that will be uncomfortable that I will embrace in order to see your life. I'm going to lose mine. He must become greater. I must become less. John would say, I must decrease, he must increase. Because there is one coming who is greater than I. If we're going to see the king in his coming, we must decrease and he must increase. This is sanctification. This is him making us holy. his. This is the process that we all go through. But I don't allow the flesh to have victory in areas that I need to submit more fully to the spirit of God for my life. This is daily prayer. This is our moments of walking with the Lord, of surrendering to his kingdom and his kingdom's ways. Bruce, would you come up? And I believe that as I was even preparing this, I just, I just believe that there's some even listening right now, maybe in this room, maybe online, maybe later on the podcast, that you're going, you relate to the call of Christ on your life to come and follow to come and fulfill the plan and purposes of his kingdom for you and for your family and for your community. You relate to that. And he is coming back, as I mentioned before, for that bride that is pure and spotless, dressed in white. And he's asking us to walk in that covenant with him. But for some of us, this is going to mean we got to break up with our boyfriend. What do I mean by that? You think about it. When you're in High school, and you've got the letterman's jacket on, right? Because he gave it to you, or the ring that he, he's won. Some of us are still holding on to those things from our past relationships with this world. We're still wanting to walk fully in God's ways and his plan for our life, but we've got one foot over here still wanting to do our own thing and still wanting to kind of pacify our sins and give them a, a bye. And, and God is saying, you need to, we're going to have to break up with the things of this world. And it may be actual people in your life. You may be at a place right now where they're just going to pull you back in to an old way of thinking, an old way of living, and it's not going to be healthy. Not spiritually, not for what God's wanting to do in you and through you. And He's wanting to tell us and remind us that if you want to save your life, it's going to mean losing it. And that is when you'll find it. That is when saving will mean losing losing will mean finding because this is his kingdom's principles. And so today without one foot in the world and one foot in God's. If anything in this pandemic has shown me, it's shown me that God is drawing a deeper line in the sand of our hearts. Asking us who will we really worship? Who will we really surrender and submit to? And for what reason will it be because we hold on to this as truth? Because it's our tradition or will we surrender our lordship to and allow him to direct and guide our lives? Will we have rest and peace because we have found ourselves dead and alive to Christ and him alone? It's hard for a dead man to be afraid. It's hard for a dead man to desire something, to even hunger for the things of this world. It's hard for a man who is dead to struggle with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the pride of the boastful things in this world that we could boast of. It's hard for a dead man to walk in those ways. And today, he is bidding us come and die. Hudson Taylor, missionary to India, would write this. He would say that there is a cross that is made for each one of us. It is tailored for each and every one of us. And I believe that. I believe that my cross to bear may look different than your cross. The things that I have to sacrifice and give up, so to speak, so that his life may be more full in me, may look just a little different. There's some commonalities, absolutely. But he is asking, would you come? Would you come and have life forever? The fullness of it that I have for you, it's going to mean denying yourself. It's going to mean taking up that cross daily. And then, then we will see his resurrection power in us and through us. Jesus says, I will return. I will return. And when I do, it will be to reward each one of you according to what you have done. That's the end of this passage. He says, I believe as Paul writes, there's this crown of glory that will be given to each one of us based on how we have responded to heaven's revelation in our life. There is this crown that will be given to each one of us because of how we've used the, the talents, the gifts, the, what he's given us. And we will lay this at his feet. And even now we can bring his, his kingdom to earth versus living in this earthly mentality forfeiting the true value of an eternal kingdom. And I believe that God wants us to do that in our spirits, and our souls now, as we can establish his kingdom in us, but also in this earth around us, making each one of his enemies a footstool to his feet. This is defeating some of the emotions, the mentalities that have come up against us. This is also speaking truth to our friends in love so that we can see them walk in the fullness and the light of the Lord that he has for them. This is us praying through our neighborhoods and tearing down spiritual strongholds. This is us also seeing that God has a plan for each of us as individuals, as our church, as a corporate. But it will be as we declare the glories of our great God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I just believe that even in this message where we're we're looking at the the upside-down kingdom, your ways not being like ours, a, a crawling up on the cross and letting our flesh be crucified once again. God, that we all could say we need to renew this today. For some, if they've not come to faith in you that are watching or listening right now for the first time, this is going to be the first time that they receive what you did on that cross. Did they receive the forgiveness for their sins that they see that it is not death that is going to be the final word in their life, but it is going to be your life. But Lord, right now, I just ask that you would renew in every single one of our hearts a heavenly hunger, a commitment, a covenant that we would say, you are Lord. We will follow you. Lord, as for me and my house We will serve the Lord. Today, I say, I have decided to follow you, Jesus. And for me, and I believe for others in this room and those listening and watching, they're saying there's no turning back. There is no turning back. Today, we renew this covenant. We renew our love for you. And we thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit that allows us to walk out your kingdom's ways here on earth. May it be ever so. In our midst, in your name I pray, amen and amen.